Timothy was a young colleague and apprentice in ministry to the Apostle Paul. You're well aware of the two letters that are recorded in our New Testament from Paul to Timothy. Um, one particularly encouraging him in the way in which he would communicate to the church and the other which bolsters his seeming um, faith which is dissolving in the midst of all that he is being asked to do. Um, the relationship that they had was obviously a very powerful thing. Who knows exactly when it began? But Paul had respect for Timothy, and Timothy had such respect for Paul. I have a professor in my mind just at this moment who was such a grand preacher um, and I sought to learn from him in the classes that I took um, but it was at a certain point where I came to myself to think there is no way to teach what he does <laughs> and I could have taken the path to think, well, there's no use in trying anymore because you can't be like him. But I came to another decision, and that is that maybe God could do something through me, even then. Can you imagine what was going on in Timothy's heart as he stood beside Paul and listened to him preach? Can you imagine what might have happened in Timothy's heart as he sat with Paul, perhaps in some of his times of imprisonment? Can you imagine how he was motivated by that, but also intimidated by it? Timothy was particularly Paul's point of communication with the early church in Ephesus Paul's letters and epistles were instructions to Timothy very specifically how he was to manage the demands of parish ministry. Some of the instructions that we read about uh, in these words in 1 Timothy, some of those instructions in these previous chapters are peculiar to that time. Very specifically, some instructions about how slaves relate to masters and masters to slaves. And it may be that you would think, well, that's not applicable to we and the society in which we live right now. But there is so much that does fit us in the words of this epistle. In fact, it fits us almost too well. Toward the end of this short letter, Paul guides Timothy on how to communicate with those of means. Ephesus is not so unlike Statesboro in some ways, and yet it was a lot larger than Statesboro. In the height of its time, 
it was this Roman city that was blessed with such commerce and such large buildings. Um, there was a library that was there that was said to have contained 12,000 scrolls. Can you imagine? There was a great temple that was built to honor the god Artemis. There was, there was such commercial goings on and such a wonderful theater in town that it was a place that drew people from far distances. One of the things that I read just this week about Ephesus is that in church tradition, it is the case that it is reported that Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the adopted son that was given to her, John, at the crucifixion, you remember that conversation, that Mary and John retired to Ephesus as a family in that place. Whether that was truly the case or not is fascinating because it tells us that it was considered to be a place in which there might be hope for the future in some way. Ephesus was much larger than Statesboro, but as I said, it is not so unlike Statesboro in that there were poor people there and there were wealthy people there and there were people all in between those two expanses. When Jesus was in Bethany just before his last supper, do you remember the story of how he was in a house with his disciples there, uh, Simon the leper's house, in fact. And as he was there with his disciples, there was a woman that came in and she had this alabaster container of very precious ointment, perfume, obviously. And she broke open that container and poured its contents onto Jesus's head. Oh, the disciples were incensed at this wasteful act and in fact spoke to Jesus about it, calling his attention to the fact that if this ointment had only been sold, it could have been such a blessing to those who were poor. Do you remember what Jesus' response to the disciples was at that point? He said, the poor you will have with you always. Was that as if Jesus was saying, it does not matter? Oh, you know, that was not his heart. In fact, I uh, love the, the interpretation that Shane Claiborne gives to that. He said he thinks it was his way, Jesus' way of saying that if you are going to be the church, you will always be near the poor. And so the poor will always be with you. That's a fascinating interpretation, isn't it? But here the disciples were questioning. And Jesus was giving them this obvious thing. That the poor would always be with them. Have you considered what the Apostle Paul was getting at in these words? I think that the Apostle Paul was offering this idea. That not only the poor are going to be with you, but the rich will be with you always too. Now this is an interesting thought. 
because in every church that I have ever served, there have been the poor and there have been the wealthy. Why is that the case? It's because these are relative terms. We determine what poor and what wealthy means. In fact, somebody might look at the culture in which we live and so surmise that everybody in this sanctuary today is wealthy when you're talking about global standards. Even if you live in the tiniest house in Statesboro and drive the simplest and old car that you have driven for ages, it may well be that when comparing that lifestyle to the lifestyle of those who are in the third world, you might think to yourself, oh, how blessed I am. <clears throat> and so these are relative terms. And the categories seem so arbitrary. Because, I mean, who calls themselves rich? <laughs> you know, if I were to take a survey of those of you who are here today, I dare say that not a single one of you would say that you are rich. In fact, with the obligations that are a part of your money, you might say, preacher, you don't understand how very poor I am. <clears throat> Years ago, I remember having a conversation with my brother. Uh, Tim is also a United Methodist minister, uh, now retired, but serving a congregation in Macon, Georgia. But on the occasion of this conversation, it was interesting to me that he said that he had come to the conclusion that many people that he knew, at least in the churches that he had served, many of them lived in velvet prisons. And I said, Tim, what do you mean, velvet prisons? And he went on to say that most people are not very liquid in their assets, nor in their lifestyles. So that they are in nice homes and they drive fine cars and they may even have a boat or a jet ski or something that represents one more step to what the fine life is. But all of that, all of that is this prison that keeps them from being able to to be tithers to living the generous life that God calls us to live now some of you know what damage can be done by debt and how unsettling it can be to think that you might never be free of debt in order to be free to give that is part of what I might be referring to here but there's a larger picture that you might be living debt-free but living so full of a life in terms of purchases and expenditures that the end result of the giving that you do is no different than someone who would give who has been so burdened by debt 
that they have nothing left over to give. You see what's going on here, don't you? The instruction, the instruction that Paul gives is into the sea of all of those who consider for even just a moment those who might consider that they live a very good life when it comes to things. There is a will to be generous, to partner with God. But there seems to be no way in order to make that happen. And I might add, especially in a time such as a pandemic. Now, I do want to say that the finance committee of Pittman Park Church has actually been quite amazed at the responsiveness of this congregation to the continuing needs of the church. But I will tell you that we end every finance committee with prayer that that will continue. What a blessing it is, though, to know that you and I see the ongoing pattern of our life as being an important part of the equation. Life can be very, very uncertain, especially to those who set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. And I am quoting Paul verbatim there, remember? It's interesting to think about Ephesus today. Do you know where Ephesus is? It's in Turkey. It is a place that has been abandoned long ago. In fact, the only persons that go there are tourists and archaeologists. Because there is no life in the city anymore. The temple to Artemis has been destroyed. In fact, Constantine made sure that that would be the case. But everything else has dissolved into nothing that is living. There's a great amphitheater, but no one sits in it to watch plays. The streets are paved with huge stones. And once they were lined with these columns. But no longer do people spill out into the streets and into the shops of Ephesus. Why? Because I can tell you. There is uncertainty in wealth. We are to set our minds on God. For God is the one that provides for us. Provides us everything for our enjoyment. Years ago, I went with a team from the church that we served. Went on a trip to Jamaica with a mission objective with the physicians that were accompanying us to be a part of a setting uh, where eye surgery could be done. 
And my job was simply to do the preacher thing, to talk with the patients as they were waiting or as they were recuperating uh, from that surgery. What was so fascinating to me was the gathering for worship on Sunday, though. We went into this little building that was there, hardly able to house those that came for worship. It was crowded uh, to bursting at the seams. I asked what was going on around the edges of the building. And it was fascinating to me that this very, very poor congregation told me that they were in the process of building another structure and unable to purchase extra land upon which to build that structure, they decided the best thing to do was just to walk off a distance around the present sanctuary and enclose it in a new sanctuary and then remove it and they would be on their same holy ground. And I thought to myself, they're not poor at all. Not the way that they're looking at life. And if you could have heard them in worship and the praises that lifted from their wonderful singing, what a glory it was in that place. Let me ask you a question. Can you remember a time when you had less money than you do now? I hope you're able to answer yes to that. If you're not, God's blessings be upon you. God's blessings be upon you. But for those who are able to answer yes to the question, can you remember a time when you had less money than you do now? Let me ask you a question. Were you less happy then? Were you less blessed then? Isn't this the interesting thing? Now, I know that nostalgia is this way of looking at history through rose-colored glasses. And we forget those things that are difficult. But don't write this off so quickly. Because I'm suggesting to you something besides nostalgia. I'm asking that you and I be able to perceive the world through the eyes of the Apostle Paul and perhaps through the eyes of Timothy whom Paul was training through this letter. Paul writes, Timothy tell the rich that they are to do good and to be rich in good works and generous and ready to share. And how is it that that would be the case? He's not suggesting that somehow there is this ever-expanding pie of resources. Now, Paul is expecting the fact that those who do have will realize that there is joy in sharing what they have, even though it means they will have less 
off what they have. How many of you had a mother growing up when pie was served after supper would always take the last and the smallest piece of pie wanting to make sure that everybody at the table had their full share because she was always filled to overflowing with the idea that everybody else's happiness made her happy. God bless us for those who understand that image. Partnering with God is crucial. It is absolutely crucial. My prescription for you, your homework this week, is to pray two words and let it be a breath prayer. Breathe in and say, use and breathe out and say, me. Use me. And in this prayer, let it be a sign that you are ready to partner with God in what he is doing. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase of the scripture that's called The Message, he interprets these words. He says, Tell those rich in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves. Wow, how does he get away with that kind of paraphrase? <laughs> Let me read it again. Tell those rich in this world's wealth to quit being so full of themselves and so obsessed with money, which is here today and gone tomorrow. Tell them to go after God to be rich in helping others, which is what this is about. Expanding the circle of good news by using unrighteous mammon in a way that would make God smile. Thomas Merton, the American Trappist monk who took residence in the abbey at Gethsemane in Kentucky and lived far too short a life, wrote this, the importance of detachment from things, the importance of poverty, and he was living as a monk. The importance of poverty is that we are supposed to be free from things that we might prefer to people. Wherever things have become more important than people, we are in trouble. That is the crux of the whole matter. As we prepare to come to communion, let me remind you that Christ calls his disciples to partner with God. At this table of community, at this table of generosity, 
at this table of grace.